Previously on Hound Radio's Arch Campbell podcast. It's a mini series from Dennis mm-hmm. Lehane, uh, who is like, you know, noted crime novelist. Right. Um, and it's six episodes, which I think is manageable. So I've been recommending that as well. Is six the new nine? Or I think, 13. I think, I think, <laughs> I think 10 is the new 13. And six Uh, is the new eight. The Arch Campbell podcast featuring Arch, Lou Katz, and a cast of thousands begins now. Well, that was our friend Rocky Haddadi of Vulture with a plug for Ray Liotta's final series, Blackbird, which uh, she likes because it's six episodes. And I think we're starting to like shorter episodes or shorter numbers. Uh, Anyway... Speaking of short numbers, I'm Arch Campbell, and this podcast hopes to help you keep up with the ever-changing world of entertainment. Lou Katz in the control room, yep, directing and producing. Yep. Are we on the air, Lou? No, we're, we're on the podcast, Arch. Oh, well, <laughs> we're on the God. on the podcast. Remember when we used to be on the oh, air? Oh God! Yeah. Well. Our guest today is our longtime friend. She is the ruler of all media from Vulture and New York Magazine, Jen Cheney. Yeah, Jen. Thank you very much, despite the lies in your introduction. <laughs> no, we've upped you to ruler now. I think you rule. And uh, with Jen, the president of the Washington Area Film Critics Association, another longtime personal friend, now director of the Lakefront Film Festival. Let's say hello to Mr. Hey. Tim. All right, Tim, back. Tim, glad you could be with us. <laughs> Tim is making gestures that cannot be heard on a podcast. <laughs> Tim. <laughs> Thank you. The, the only uh, critic who does his reviews in mime, <laughs> Tim Gordon. So uh, that being said, let's get rolling and let's start with Jen Cheney because I'm always interested. What are you watching and what are you liking these days? Uh, well, actually, I have a question for both of you because mm-hmm. I yeah. don't think the three of us have discussed Nope uh, since we saw it. And I'm, I'm mm-hmm. curious to hear your thoughts on it, if that's okay. Sure, sure. Well, uh, Tim, uh, you want to jump in here? Oh, well, I mean, I saw Nope. Uh, first of all, let me just say that I think that Jordan Peele is brilliant. Uh, I think Nope, to me, is the scariest film that he's ever made. Mm. Uh, a very Spielbergian uh, sort of a tale of uh, a brother and sister in a, in a remote ranch out somewhere in California where really strange things happen. And I, you know, I thought it was a fascinating film to watch because, you know, we always had these conversations, especially over the last couple of years about, you know, certain films play well at home versus, you know, you need to watch that in the theater. And Nope to me felt like a film that was really tailor-made for a theater. Um, It was wonderful to watch it uh, with all my colleagues and and with a a crowded theater uh, to kind of experience what I thought Peel doing a really wonderful job of tension building, uh, you know, in some scenes that were as long as maybe 20, 15, 20, 25 minutes where you would kind of feel this this palpable sense of like dread, like, wow, something something really strange is about to happen. Um, so I really enjoyed it. I thought the performances by Kiki Palmer and Daniel Kaluuya, uh, you know, I thought they did, they, the two of them played well off of one another. 
Um, I thought it had at least three really jump out loud, like, <gasps> moments <laughs> that happened in the film. Um, so I love everything about Nope. Um, you know, a lot of people have come to me and told me that they didn't really understand, you know, what Peel was doing with his storytelling as it related to the, the, the cuts between one story back to the other primary story. I just told folks, you need to just really pay attention, really watch it. And then, you know, either ask Jen, Arch, or myself, and we can kind of explain it to you. <laughs> so that's what All I right. got. I thought, I thought Note was great. I really did. Now, I'm just going to add a small note to the conversation. But first of all, I was about to go see Nope, and I had to wait on an electrician. The electrician was late, so I have mm. not seen Nope yet. Okay. My question about Jordan Peele is how uh, his films compare to Get Out, which is the gold standard. And, uh, and from what I hear... Uh, uh, the gold standard of Get Out is hard to surpass. And so I worry about him uh, in the vein of uh, M. Night Shyamalan, that uh, The Sixth Sense is still his best film. So, Jen, let me pitch it to you. Where is uh, Nope uh, compared to Get Out? Well, I think... Is that unfair to ask? No, it's not. I, I think Get Out is the most straightforward movie that Jordan Peele has made in that, I mean, there's certainly layers in it, but I think most people like understand what the subtext of that movie is, whereas mm -hmm. us and Nope, they're, it's it's to the point Tim was making, it's not as necessarily as straightforward, clear what is the underlying point that Jordan Peele is trying to make. But I actually like that about both of those movies because I've thought about them, you know, extensively after I've watched them and I... I'm constantly finding new ways in. I thought, nope, a lot of it was about just the way Hollywood erases Black history and erases things that they just really don't want to talk about. I saw the spaceship as a metaphor for kind of Hollywood. And I think that really makes an interesting bookend with where Get Out comes from. Uh, wow. A lot, of, Some of the imagery in Get Out is, is, uh, is kind of echoed in Nope in really interesting ways. So um, I have no worries about Jordan Peele. I think he's a genius who's making a lot of money and he's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Good. So, so where is Nope uh, as far as uh, movies this year goes? Uh, are you saying this is this is one of those must sees? You need to drop everything. I mean, it's certainly one of the best movies I've seen this year. I'm not prepared to say mm -hmm. it's the best yet because the year's not over, but it's certainly up there for me. Yeah, okay. and, and to echo Jen's point, I think uh, that the really straightforward answer is that I think Get Out is clearly still his best film. I think this, to me, is superior to Us. Us, I probably need to go back and rewatch, but these two films, Nope and Get Out, feel like films that are, are these kind of films that are in the conversation that you'll have. Like you, you just said, you know, like I haven't seen Nope yet talk to me about Nope. So I've had a lot of people who want to stop and talk to me about this film and the oh, meanings good. that are embedded good. in much in, in a, a much different way than when Us came out. People just thought Us was just weird. Uh, you know, and, I, and the, one of the things about Us that and, and all of his films, which is really interesting, is that it feels like there's always a shred of some truth in it. And then he dramatizes a, a story around the truth that's in the film. So to Jen's point, 
you know, a, a lot of the earlier things that they talk about, about the history of the first images in film, all that stuff is actually true. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then the story yeah. kind of develops around it, much like in Us, when you had Hands Across America, which is true, and then you build this story. So so Peel sort of has a methodology on how he constructs his stories. But to Jen's point, he's making a lot of money, and I think he's smart. And there's no, he is no way in the same vein as M. Night. I, <laughs> these two guys are like in different planes to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think there's much more layered storytelling in what uh, Jordan Peele does and than what M. Night Shyamalan, generally speaking, has done. Although I wouldn't say that like all of his films after this, The Sixth Sense were bad. Um, no. but, but you're absolutely right that The Sixth Sense like set a very high watermark that I don't think he's ever quite yeah, measured Yeah, I caught up to. his movie Old. Is Old, was that the name of it? Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. where, the, where people start uh, their uh, aging process speeds up because they're on some... Uh, Mystical uh, wacky beach. mystical beach <laughs> and uh you know i thought it was fine i didn't think it was great <laughs> right it was watchable it was and it was good uh to stream it speaking well, of, of all, i want to ask both of you if you've been watching the last movie stars on yes. hbo max oh, yes great. i watched the whole thing <laughs> yeah it was great man I, it made me cry at the end. I mean, that last scene, I the, was like, the, wow. The sixth episode <laughs> actually made me very sad and made mm. me cry. Mm. And uh, I got a sense of Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward and their marriage and how they worked out their lives and marriage in their work. It's produced by Ethan Hawke. And I thought the uh, clips and the use of their films was brilliant. Mm -hmm. And at first, I was a little irritated with it. Um, and you can probably talk about the structure better than me. But, uh, but I was blown away when I finished the sixth uh, episode. Uh, so let me toss it out to, to you two. Can I, I mean, can I go first, Jen? Yeah, yeah go ahead, Tim. I was going to say, you know, as a guy that really is a Hollywood historian, what I found, so there were a couple of things that I thought were really genius in what Ethan Hawke did. First of all, we've watched, all of us have watched tons of docs, right? You know, we've always yeah. seen the doc structure, you know, point A, point B, point C, et cetera. What I thought Hawke did that was really interesting is that he took all of the people that normally would be in a doc that you would that that would talk about this actor from different periods of their life. Talking head. And he asked them to voice the voice the people from these interviews, which I was like, man, that, that's a new perspective I've never seen before. Laura Linney's gonna do Joanne Woodward. George Clooney agreed to read. Paul. And then secondly, what I thought was interesting, as a guy who loves Paul Newman, right? And you know, I thought that 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 Sidney Poitier, as much as I admire him should not have won the Oscar in 1963 for Best Actor for Lilies of the Field. I thought yeah. Hunt was far superior, right? And to hear the insecurities of Newman, who literally, you know, to use a, a hip-hop reference, you know, you had the notorious B.I.G., he dies, Jay-Z steps into what I think would have been the career of Christopher Wallace. You know, uh, Beyonce steps into what I think would have been the career of Aaliyah, who died prematurely. 
Paul Newman steps into the career of what would have been James Dean. And it was really mm-hmm. interesting to look at those parallels and to also understand that his wife was a huge star when they got together. And he was, you know, like third behind Brando, Marlon Brando and James Dean. When they first married, she just won the Oscar. She's the star. And it was just a really interesting documentary all the way around and the structure of the story, what Hawk did, the content involved, all the access he had. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, well, let me jump in here and say that Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward were interviewed on a regular basis for many, many years, and Newman decided to uh, junk the uh, the project, so the tapes were burned, most of them. What happened to these tapes? He poured gasoline on them and lit them on fire. Ethan Hawke got transcripts of those tapes and uh, and used actors such as George Clooney voicing uh, Paul Newman to recreate the uh, content they provided. And I just want to say I got a sense that Joanne Woodward was the much greater actor or actress. (laughs) Indeed. Jen. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, what I liked about the way Ethan Hawke handled this was certainly there was a great deal of reverence for the work that both of them did and and certainly for the the altruism they they displayed mm. later in their career um right. by giving so much of their money to uh the camp that Paul Newman established and all sorts of other causes um but it also didn't make them it didn't deify them it really no, it talked about the no. way you know first of all Paul Newman's first marriage and the fact that he was married to an actress before her and the impact that had when he left that marriage on her and on her children, um, it, you know, it just it it allowed you to say, yes, these are movie stars, but they had this seemingly perfect marriage had all kinds of issues going on within mm-hmm. it that weren't always necessarily um, known to the public. And the fact that they navigated that and were still together is what's beautiful, not that it was perfect. And I think that that came across very strongly. I was so moved by the sixth episode of The Last Movie Stars that I downloaded Mr. and Mrs. Bridge and watched it instead of going over to Montgomery Mall to watch Nope. And I well, was Arch. blown. <laughs> There's only, you know, my time is limited now. Everybody's time is limited, technically. Ahead of you. <laughs> I have limited time. <laughs> so I watched Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, and I was blown away. But it was the last film they did together. It was a Merchant Ivory film based on two uh, novels from the 50s and 60s about an upper middle class family in Kansas City in the uh, 20s and 30s and early 40s and how they respond to changing times and joanne woodward just uh has stayed the movie has stayed with me for three or four days now Mm -hmm. i and i just i highly recommend if you're looking for something to do download mr and mrs bridge uh the last film joanne woodward and paul newman made together she's still alive with alzheimer's Mm -hmm. yeah which is uh quite sad yeah so, but to your point about Nope, I'm still processing uh, the last movie stars, and 
and then that uh, the chaser of uh, of Mister and Mrs. Bridge. <laughs> Do you remember that film at all? I remember that it existed, but I don't think I saw it. <laughs> well, nobody, I, need to, it, I need to see it. It's one of one of their um, least successful films. Mm. Did you ever see that, uh, Tim? I have seen Mr. and Mrs. Brid, Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. Um, but the film that stayed with me that Newman uh did, and I've watched it over and over, is Nobody's Fool. Mm. I, I love mm. him and Jessica Tandy. And I remember seeing that at a screening years ago with, you know, some of our colleagues who are no longer in the business. Um, mm. you know, uh Rita Kempley and and Sally Klein yeah. and some of those folks. Yeah. We were all blown away at a screening, like, wow, Newman. Yeah. Even at that age, he still had it. That was 94. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's really, really a talented actor. But it's interesting to, 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 to surmise or imagine, as I said earlier, what his career would have been if James Dean had lived because his first big break came in, what was the film called? Somebody Up There Likes Me, which mm-hmm. Dean was cast in, but tragically died and Newman stepped in. And that film kind of skyrocketed the start of his career. Um, so, you know, like I said, it, 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 there were a lot of things that I could point to in that film. Uh, the emotional aspects of it, the information, you know, a lot of the things that we didn't know, as you said earlier, both Arch and Jen about his marriage or the marriage right. which on the surface looked absolutely perfect, but they had a lot of struggles, but they worked it out which mm-hmm. I think is a credit to the both of them that they were able to evolve and grow and continue to love each other through an entire lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I didn't yeah. realize that that his cancer diagnosis and her Alzheimer's diagnosis came so close together. Yeah, um, yeah that was also a punch in the gut. Man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. So, mm. uh, so Tim, let me uh, seg over to you. What are you watching and liking these days? Well, I was teased a couple of nights ago at a screening because somebody asked me what I had watched over the weekend. And I said, I spent the weekend watching The Bear. And everybody started <laughs> laughing. And they said, The Bear is literally eight 22-minute episodes. It didn't take a weekend. I said, well, it took me a weekend because I had other stuff going on. <laughs> but but I, I love The Bear. I mean, it was a, a, a series that once it was released, I think I purposely didn't watch it because it was getting so much praise. And I finally sat down and said, well, let me see what all the hype about the bear is about. And I thought the writing, the performances, everything you could tell that whoever created the person who created this show must have really at some point been that guy or been in that life because there's so it's so rich in detail, um, much different than chef from several years ago mm-hmm. with, with, um, Mr. Favreau with John Favreau, this one takes more of a dramatic spin. And of course, you probably guys have already probably talked about the bear, but that's what I've been essentially watching and have been thinking about and have been engrossed with. That the bear show. is the Chicago restaurant guy who takes over sort of a fast grill place and uh, has to deal with all the behind the scenes that we don't see when we order a hamburger and sit at the counter. It seems to me like that's one of Jen's faves. It, it is. You yeah. mentioned the bear. Yeah. I feel like we talked about it maybe at some point, yeah. but yeah, I, I thought it was absolutely terrific. Totally puts you in the atmosphere of the kitchen and yeah. the tension of that. And yeah, you're right. The, the creators behind this 
they definitely knew the restaurant business and had been there in the thick of it. So yeah, I, I really loved it. And the internet, as Tim suggested, has not gotten enough of the bear. <laughs> Can't get enough. No, it's, 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 but it's interesting because I call these food, these food porn, either movies or food porn shows. And they're all different to different degrees. Like I remember no reservations. I was like, eh, you know, that one was okay. Um, but Chef, I really liked. Chef mm -hmm. almost made me hungry while I was in the theater watching it. I was like, I need something to eat. This film. Yeah. <laughs> I walked out and immediately went to get a sandwich. Pretty <laughs> I don't know if the bear made me feel that way. The bear, to, to all of the drama that was going on behind the scenes, I didn't get the same sense, but I enjoyed it just as much. Oh, I was hungry. I was hungry the whole time. It's funny you mentioned that, Jen. I want to jump in because Jeremy Allen White, who plays Carmi on the show, was recently on with Seth Meyers. And here's something that'll deter your appetite. It's weird. A lot of people are calling out and they're not wrong that I should have been wearing a cap. I should have been wearing like something because like so much of Carmi's hair is probably in all those sandwiches. Yeah, that's a fair yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. There was also an entire like sequence of, of just donuts that was so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I remember that. Yeah. So, Jen, I'm going to have to ask you off air because I'm still not understanding or processing episode eight because I'm trying to figure out how you get something inside of something that's sealed. Well, so we, very Vulture, Vulture wrote a piece about this very issue, I believe, mm -hmm. um, and so did another outlet, I think. Anyway, there's information about this on the Internet because other people oh, have good. the same question. So, so that's hey, what I guess, apparently. We're tapping into Tim's inner chef. It's not even we, chef. It's like some, it's, it's con artistry and wizardry. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, where are we on Better Call Saul? Every time I have one of these podcasts, I confess that I'm continually confused by Better Call Saul. Where where are we on that? Are you all watching that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We only got two episodes left at this yeah. point. Yeah. Thank goodness. Well, now I'm Thank really goodness. confused. Okay. <laughs> well, because I want to see how they wrap it up. And, yeah. and now they're jumping back and forth. They finally did uh, give a payoff where uh, Walter White um, and his assistant uh, connect with uh, Saul. But they jump back and forth to his life after uh, Albuquerque and his life that we knew in um, Breaking Bad. And, you know, I, I'm, I don't know. Where are you with it, Jen? I still think it's an incredible show. One of the most well-directed on television. I am not confused by the jumping <laughs> back and forth. I can understand why one might be, but, mm -hmm. I, but I, I found it easy to follow. I thought that last, the most recent episode, which brings um, uh, Aaron Paul and Brian Cranston yeah. back. Yeah. Uh, is of course it's it's filling in blanks from an episode of Breaking Bad that was called Better Call Saul in an mm -hmm. episode of Better Call Saul called Breaking Bad, um, which again makes total sense to me. Just bringing Talk it all about back around, sealing something inside of something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you go back and you look at the that episode of Breaking Bad, you'll be like, okay, I understand what's going on, uh -huh. which yeah, which parts we didn't see of what we did. You know, it all connects. You just have to like take a few moments to refresh your memory. Tim, are you a Better Call Saul fan? Are you following? Well, I will just tell you a quick story. <laughs> several years ago, no, seriously, several years ago, I was at a Critics' Choice Awards, and the pre-show, 
Giancarlo Esposito walked up and we had we hung out and laughed for about 20 minutes. And he was nominated, of course, for his work on one of these two shows. And yeah. he asked me, what did I think about his work? And I said, sir, I've never watched a minute of, of, of the, one of those shows. I have no idea. So I told him, I said, for you, I will watch them. And if you're watching Mr. Esposito, I lied. <laughs> I've never, <laughs> I've never watched them. So I have no idea. And I've never watched, here's another fun fact. I've never watched one minute of any Law & Order show ever. So I get so much grief really? at home. Good for you. Like, you don't watch Law & Order? No. Sorry. Me either, Tim. <laughs> Me either. I'm not, I'm with you on the Law & Order. Yeah. However, the Breaking Bad not watching is unforgivable and you need to correct that. Don't lie well, to Giancarlo Esposito. Uh, Want to go to hell or something? I, I like him. He's a great guy, but I lied. I never watched it. And he's really terrific in it, in both. I heard. Yeah. I heard. I tell you, I am looking forward to season two of Reservation Dogs, a little series that I have been uh, very fond of since it started, set uh, on a reservation in Oklahoma with uh, a group of uh, young people, teens, or pretia teens, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first season I would describe as sort of uh, the indigenous version of Waiting for Godot. Wow. <laughs> and have you, have you caught any of the new Reservation Dogs season? Yeah, yeah. I've watched the first couple episodes of the new season, yeah. and it's still yeah. very, very good. And, and in fact... Uh, as you may remember from the from last season, one of the characters, or actually two characters, um, mm. decide to go to California. Right. Yeah. And the things that happen to those two women in the first couple episodes are just uh, harrowing and edge of your seat, uh, making you nervous type of situation. Um, so I don't know if that's waiting for Godot. It just doesn't feel like it's waiting for Godot at all. It feels like well, Godot Thelma has come to possibly murder you. <laughs> <laughs> Not Thelma and Louise. Not no, not quite. Although that's an interesting uh, analogy. Now that you say that, uh -huh. okay. but it's but it's still very good. Yeah, I'm so I'm I'm waiting for that. Uh, and speaking of uh, waiting for things, anything else we should talk about? Any thoughts on where we are in the movie season this year? Where where what's the movie world of 2022 say to you two? Movie world of 2022 says to me that. Uh, the best is yet to come because I've seen some films that have been good, but I, and I'm going to say something publicly that I should not re reveal. This is my 30th year doing this, which would be important if Arch Campbell wasn't on here. We probably <laughs> had many, many more years than that. Um, but I have really, Jen, forgive me for saying this. I have cared so, so less about a lot of the movies that have happened earlier this year. Because I understand that once we get another month in and we get to uh, Telluride and we get to TIFF and we get to Venice and the, in, in the New York Film Festival in Middleburg, the, 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 it will start to, the, the puzzle will start to become very, very plain on what movies are going to be, quote unquote, the important movies that are going to happen. They're going to be movies that we watched early this year. Some of them will make the ride along, but... I, I I don't think I've seen enough, Jen, that I think that will be films that will be, you know, that we'll be discussing four, five, six months from now 
And I think a lot of those films are going to be coming up in the next month or two. Yeah, I mean, that's that's usually always the case. Um, but I mean, I do think I would not be surprised if like we're talking about Nope during Oscar season to some extent or if we're talking about um, Everything Everywhere All at Once or yes. or even honestly, like at the very least, maybe in some technical categories, the Batman. I mean, I think there's been some stuff from the first half of the of the year that was very good. But, you know, as as usual, I think and I think Nope is is testament to this. There's a hunger for original storytelling that's not spun off of Marvel or other IP. And the fact that Jordan Peele's movies continue to do so so well is a testament to that hunger that people want that. Um, so uh, and we'll get a lot more of that kind of thing in the fall, to your point. Those yeah, three, also those on my queue is a movie called Vengeance. Either mm. you seen Vengeance kind of no. caught my attention. Uh, West I've Texas. read about it. Evelyn just didn't die. She was murdered. What? And the two of us, we want to avenge her death. So as like a personal boundary, I don't avenge deaths. But here's what I can do. Uh, and it sounds original. And I'm with Tim on that. Tim on that. I, I'm looking for original stories. Or I'm sitting home watching Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. <laughs> speaking of sitting home let's take a break now and say hello to Lou Katz and hear all about the things going on on Hound Radio well Arch one of the things we have featured on a weekly basis is our World of Dogs report and Jen you have a, at least two at last recall of four-legged friends running around your place right Still have both of them, yes. Well, check this out. You'll find it interesting. Hound Radio's leash-leading canine expert, Faith Lapidus, is back with another look into the wonderful world of dogs. Healthy adult dogs can spend up to 14 hours a day sleeping. And how they're sleeping could tell you something about how they're feeling, mentally and physically. If a dog's relaxed, he might sleep stretched out or even on his back. A dog that's anxious might curl up to be as small as possible. Or he could just be trying to get warm. If that's the case, he might roll onto his side later and stretch out. Lying on her side is one of the most common sleeping positions for dogs. That's when you can see their paws twitch while they dream of chasing bunnies. If your dog gets too warm, she may roll onto her back with her belly exposed as a way to cool off. Sleeping in the Superman pose, legs straight out front, back legs kicked out, belly on the floor, is another way to cool off, especially on a tile floor. And in this weather, we might want to join them. I'm Faith Lapidus for Hound Radio. We need to discuss Nichelle Nichols, who passed away, uh, it seems kind of suddenly, and this seems to be one of those uh, departures that kind of hits you hard. She, of course, was... uh, the pioneer on Star Trek, uh, and uh, and I just noticed the response to her is uh, there's there's an overall appreciation and sadness. And uh, Tim, did you ever uh, meet her? I, I never met Michelle Nichols, but I understood her impact. Um, and it was interesting because on my timeline on Sunday, uh, that I think there were five deaths that happened. Well, I'm, let me rephrase it. It was four on Sunday. Mary Alice had died several days earlier. And I, you know, so I kept writing, thinking that, you know, I would write one and then I'd be done. And then an hour later, uh, Variety would post somebody else past. And I'm like, okay, I got to write another one. So I kept doing it. It felt like all day on Sunday. And Michelle Nichols, 
was one that was fascinating to me. Um, I heard you say that she died suddenly. She was 89, Arch. Yeah. Sudden. <laughs> 89 doesn't sound as old. <laughs> it wasn't sudden. As but, it used to. But but her impact <laughs> was, was really vast because, as I explained on another show earlier this week, uh, in the mid-1960s, if you are a woman or if you are a minority and African-American, et cetera, you were, there were not too many places you could be seen on television. And in 1965, of course, the first Black series regular is Bill Cosby and I Spy. Michelle Nichols comes along in 66. And then uh, Diane Carroll in 1968 with right. Julie. So Michelle Nichols comes along and, you know, she does the first season of the show. Uh, and, you know, her and Gene Roddenberry, who had cast her several years earlier in a guest spot in The Lieutenant. Uh, so she really loves song and dance and she wants to be back on Broadway. Dancer. Yeah. And, uh, she was, she was, she had gone into Gene Roddenberry over on a Friday and put in a resignation and she was like, you know, I'm done. And, you know, I want to go and do what I want to do. And he said, I'm not going to accept your resignation, you know, give it a weekend and we'll talk about it on Monday. And over that weekend, she'd gone to a, some fundraiser. And while she was there at the fundraiser, the organizer said, I want to introduce you to your biggest fan. And she's thinking it's a regular Star Trek fan. And she turns around and it's Dr. Martin Luther King. <laughs> and he tells her that he loves her on this show. She's a tremendous role model. And she yeah. tells him, oh, I'm sorry, I, I just resigned. And he goes, oh, you can't resign. And she goes, what do you mean I can't resign? And he goes, for the first time on television, we will be seen as we should be seen every day, as intelligent, quality, beautiful people who can sing, dance, and, but who can go into space, who can be lawyers, who can be teachers, who can be professors, who are in this day, and yet you don't see it on television until now. Guys, that was Nichelle Nichols from an interview, I believe, in 2013. Uh, Tim, go on. Tell more of the story. She comes back, and of course, Roddenberry had never intended to accept her resignation, and the rest, they say, is history. So she goes on, she does this amazing work with this show, and then NASA taps her to help recruit astronauts for their program, minority astronauts, she brings in Sally Ride. She inspires uh, Jay Jam- I mean, Mae Jameson uh, and, and many, many others who come into the program. So she's able to leverage her, I guess, celebrity from her fake role into a real role in the space program. So she had a fascinating life that a lot of people didn't know about until her demise. I didn't know that Martin Luther King story until you posted it on Facebook, Tim. So that's... That's a fascinating story. I want to plug your Lakefront Film Festival, which is coming later this month. And I know you're going to give uh, some filmmaker a gigantic push out in Columbia, Maryland. <laughs> well, no, we actually moved it into Washington, D.C. now. So. Oh, good. Oh, good. So August the 10th through the 13th, uh, 52 films. We brought back a couple of alums who submitted uh-huh. films or have had films in our festival in the past. We got new films from Coleman Domingo in the festival. We have Charles Murray. We've got studio releases. We got secret films this year. We got all kinds of stuff. We don't have Jen Chaney this year on our critics panel or Arch Campbell. So I'm I'm, I'm happy with that. 
Okay, well, yeah, you, uh, and you had no control over it. <laughs> <laughs> what are you recommending this weekend? Quickly, we're uh, the uh, clock is ticking. Uh, for now, I'll just go with my reservation dogs recommendation from earlier. Great, I'm going to go with uh, the last movie stars and Tim Lakefront Watch Film the Bear. Uh, the Bear. <laughs> <laughs> Tim Gordon and Jen Cheney. Uh, Jen, you're on Basic. You got your own podcast. Hope yes. you're doing well. We'll read yes, you on Vulture. You. And Tim, your uh, Lakefront Film Festival starts uh, later this month. And uh, just uh, by the way, I want to also add that uh, you can watch the last movie stars on uh, HBO Max, in case I didn't say it. And Lou Katz, thank you. Thank you for your you're knob twisting and you're producing. <laughs> Glad to do it. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks. This is the Cats Podcasting System, where it's not just a podcast, but a podcast. <laughs>